Today we have the great joy of closing uh, our Extraordinary Sermon Series. Uh, This is a sermon series we started about five weeks ago, and we've been talking about what does it mean to get out of the ordinary rut of life? What does it mean to get out of the the normal and the everyday and get into the extraordinary life that God has set aside for us? To do so, uh, we finish with the sermon that I actually originally wanted to start with. When I was putting this whole series together, I wanted to start the whole thing with uh, Extraordinary Rest. And it was a a principled thing in my mind. The Hebrew world, in the Hebrew day, in the biblical day, uh, the biblical day starts at sunset. And so the first thing that someone uh, from your Bible, as the story jumps off the page, the first thing they would do in their day is get ready to sleep. The first thing you do is rest. Our Western world, the first thing we think we do in our day is we wake up, you probably check your phone, have some coffee, and head about your day. And the last thing you do in your day is sleep. But in your Bible, the first thing that the faithful would do is is rest. And it's this beautiful picture of the way that um, all of our lives, we, we think we're in control, we think we're running the show, and, and in, in the heroes of our faith, what they show us is the first and foremost thing we can do is allow our lives to be rested on God. And if we start our day that way, it changes the way we see the rest of the world. And so I actually wanted to start this whole series with rest, and it would have been perfect and poetic, but here we are, we didn't do that. So this is the closing, because we're Western people and our days close with rest. Maybe not so much anymore. Let's see. In order to set this up, I I was looking for the perfect illustration. What's the right story that illustrates just how uh, bad we are as a people at resting? And I ran across this study. The University of Virginia was doing a study, and they had participants. They were trying to sort of measure the cost of unpleasantness, okay? And so they'd given people a certain amount of money, and then people could buy their way out of the unpleasantness that was to come upon them in the little interview room. And so they would set somebody in the interview room um, alone, just them and a table, and they were strapped up to a little device. And the, the researchers were able, during this study, to then uh, hit a button and just deliver a light shock to the study participant, which they found to be generally unpleasant. And so they would, they would offer them the ability to buy their way out of the rest of the study or to continue to be shocked. And what they found is most people eventually bought their way out of the study. So what they were measuring is how much were they willing to, to put on the table because the money was theirs to keep. They could walk away with all of the money if they were willing to be shocked or they could kind of give the money back to get away from the unpleasantness. It was profoundly unpleasant and most people bought their way out. What they didn't know is it could be worse. The next group of study participants was brought into the same room and they were, were strapped up with the same little contraption that would uh, deliver a, a small shock to them, only they were not uh, given the button to the researcher. They put the button on the table and allowed the participant access to it if they wanted it. They were given no distractions, no phone, no music, no nothing. They were left alone in this study room for 15 minutes by themselves with nothing else in it but that button. Two-thirds of men... And one quarter of women, what does it say about men? Two-thirds of men and one quarter of women chose to shock themselves voluntarily, unprompted, rather than sit alone in silence with their thoughts. I'm going to repeat this. 67% of men, men, what is wrong with us? 67% of men, 25% of women chose to, rather than sit alone with their thoughts for 25 minutes, chose out of sheer boredom to just begin shocking themselves. I read this and I laughed and then I thought maybe I should cry, but it was perfect. It's the perfect illustration of the fact that we don't do silence really well. We don't do solitude very well. We are people with souls that don't really know how to rest. We're so uncomfortable, we'd rather be shocked. 
be frantic, be frenzied. We live in a society where busy is the most common answer to how are you. I get to ask a lot of people that every week, how are you doing? And by far the most common answer I get back is, oh, busy, super busy. Busier than last week? Busiest. Busiest you've ever seen. Busier than you, probably. What about your neighbors? Are they busy? They're busy, not as busy as me. Busy is a status symbol in our society. Busy, Western society is, is kind of this interesting thing where, especially in America, we're one of the only countries in the world where people don't take the fullness of their vacation every year. Even in Western societies in Europe, people take whole months off. The shop closes. People go away. August, I don't know. Where'd you go? On vacation for a month. Here, I'm too busy to take vacation, and people are counting on me. I'm super important. I can't take the vacation. Or even when we're on vacation, we're so busy with working on vacation that we never really got away. But busyness indicates that we're important. It shows people that we have lots to do. It shows that other people need us. So today, what we're going to do is fight back against anxiety and frenzy and hurry. We're going to fight back against the ordinary life of empty busyness. What we will do is instead aim for the extraordinary life, and to do so, we must find true rest. So we'll be in Psalm 3. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, and King David says this. It says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me from, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We say around here a lot that everyone is in a battle, big or small. Everybody is fighting a battle. Some of them are very public and known. Some of them are very private. Some are big, some are small. But every single one of us is engaged in life, engaged in a battle. These battles are the sources of our anxieties. They are the reasons for our restlessness. They war against us. And what we see, the symptoms of these battles that we are in, we see the symptoms of them all over the world. Relational strain and job stress. We see health issues, spiritual confusion, addictions and habits that we can't quite shake. King David, the psalmist, is in a battle. And he says, how many are my foes? Tens of thousands seek to assail me. And what is his response to that type of attack? What is his response to that sort of of incoming, imminent attack? He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. His response to the attack of tens of thousands is, I lie down and sleep. We pray for victory in our life over the enemies and battles of our days. What does it look like? Where is victory for you? Is it in striving? Is it in good works? Is it the ability to earn our way into a better station? David essentially prays, oh great God, give us rest. He says, Lord, I sleep, you win, I wake and have victory. His ultimate math is when I sleep and you win, I win because I'm in you. And so if I can rest and you can win, then I win too. David's enemies were trying to take him down as king. And his response was rest, was profound and holy rest. And there's a key difference for us as we try to extrapolate what David is going through and we apply it to our own context. 
It's important to note that David's enemies are trying to take him down off the throne. They're trying to get him away from being king to remove him from his position. For you and I, our enemies are trying to install us on the throne. The enemies of the modern world are trying to make us feel like kings and queens. They're trying to put us into a place where we will rely on nothing less than ourselves as God. And so consumerism and modern materialism and a general busyness is the thing that we are offered. To be more, you have to buy more, which means you have to spend more, which means you must work more and strive more and stretch more. You've got to do it if you want to be more. It's the great lie that spoils our lives, the great vacation moment of fullness that never amounted to anything because you were so busy trying to get it posed just right for social media. The sunset that we missed because we didn't take the picture, but we were so frantic trying to take the picture that we never saw the sunset. The tender moment tucking in a child that's interrupted by a buzzing phone in a pocket reminding you that you're important and them that they are not as important as what is on your stupid phone. I speak from experience. But the shame is real when your child wants nothing but intimacy with you in a moment and you feel the buzz and you're with God's creation, his very image instilled into your flesh and your bones and you're sitting there going, she just wants five minutes and the temptation is, but I'm so important, I should check and see what it is. Thunderstorm will start in seven minutes. I didn't need to know that. Eugene Peterson says about life that the whole spiritual life is learning how to die. He says the whole spiritual life is learning how to die. He says as you learn to die, you start losing all of your illusions. You start being capable of true intimacy and love, but only once you learn how to die do you really find out what it means to live. What he's saying is you don't experience love at its deepest or intimacy at its fullest because we don't know how to lose ourselves. We don't know how to truly rest and let go of anything, and therefore we can't actually receive what God has for us. We can't let go of our chase for status and our chase for more stuff. We can't let that die, and as a result, we never truly live. And I would argue that life is always found in the death of lesser things. Life is always found in the death of lesser things. So when you have the choice of child or phone— the death of lesser things brings more life. When you have the choice of meaningful moment with person or meaningful moment with screen, the death of the lesser thing will bring more life. And so over and over and over again throughout all of our lives, we have these opportunities and these moments, these inflection points where we can choose more life or refuse to learn how to die in the moment and miss out. These sweet moments of life require our full attention. The other thing that's true is when when we're not resting well, we know it. We don't sleep well, we don't rest well, and it's ultimately based in control. We don't rest well because we don't know how to let go. We don't sleep well because we don't know how to let go. Because control becomes our God. David has major issues. You read the life of David, and he goes through some ups and downs. And when he handles them really poorly, you see him tighten his control and bear down and try to figure out a solution. And when you see him released and rescued and rewarded, it's because he lets go. You can go through his life and follow the track of his life and see where God is blessing him and see where he is stealing back that blessing to try to be in control of his own life. In Psalm 3, he chooses to rest and let God sort it out. And there we are tossing and turning, unable to let go of the problems of our day. We do this even with the vague awareness that we're not in control of anything. 
that our breath is not our own, that my next heartbeat is not under my control. I cannot will myself to the next moment. Peterson talks about these illusions that I own my own calendar, I control my own life, I number my own days, and it's rubbish. We are here because God allows it. We breathe our next breath because God ordains it. When we let go of these illusions that we're somehow in charge of this universe, when we let go of the illusion that our control is going to make anything happen, then our hands are freed up to grab the things that really matter in life. Consider this Jesus that we follow. This is going to surprise you. Jesus didn't have a smartphone. It's shocking. He had no social media, and he walked about the Middle East at about two miles an hour. This is the life of Jesus. No smartphone, no social media, and he walked everywhere. You are addicted to technology, stuck on social media, and you zip through traffic like your hair is on fire. Jesus changed the world for eternity at two miles an hour. You have a light on your dashboard because you are too busy to change your oil. The reality is we follow a Jesus who modeled a way of going through life, of a, a reliance and a rest on the Father. Does this mean that we're supposed to open a monastery, all sell our stuff, wear robes, and start walking everywhere? No. But it does mean that we can apply an ancient ritual, an ancient wisdom to a modern context and figure out where are we missing on life as it's being offered to us? Where are we missing out on what God has set up for us? And here's a life spoiler, a pretty uplifting one. Life is learning how to die because that's the trajectory of every life. Every single one of us lives and then dies. It's hopeful only when we're found in Christ. Otherwise, it's super depressing. It's hopeful in Christ, though, because our busyness in this life, in this everlasting churn of the treadmill of modern life, is then changed into eternal rest. That in this life with our broken bodies and our disease, we find a healing in heaven. In this life, we have earthly conflict and we're being offered eternal resolution. We will all enter into the rest of the Father. The question becomes, what if that were available now? What if this eternal rest that we wait for, that, oh gosh, I wish, I wish I could just be done with this and rest. What if that were available to you now? that rest and hope and healing and joy and meaning were available now. Because the summation of Scripture is that it is. Is that at the moment of belief, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you are welcomed into the family of God, the simple theology is that death is no more. It doesn't apply to you. That you've been included in the life of Christ, and since Christ has defeated death, you no longer fear the sting of death. So that when your earthly life is over, it is a simple transition into your eternity. And so as people who do not have to fear death because we follow Christ and we're secure and saved in Him, the reality is we have been welcomed into eternity now. We live in eternity today, and it's up to you and I whether to choose to access that or to hold it off for another day. And so while we wait for the sweet by and by... We're missing out on the fact that heaven exists here and now for us, that we have eternity in our midst. God rested to enjoy his creation. And whether we admit it or not, our behavior reveals that we are terrified of slowing down into the silence. We're afraid of silence, not in fear of what we might hear, but in fear that there's nothing in us worthy enough to hear it. 
we deny the very fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit, that the very presence of God himself lives within us to receive this goodness, to guide us and teach us and counsel us and show us the way. And when we quench that and we push that out, we go, gosh, I'm terrified of the silence. Because what if there's nothing worthy in me to hear it? What if God whispers and I'm just this filthy old soul? What if and that's believing a lie. It's believing the illusion that we somehow need to earn our way into God's good graces, that we need to earn our way into God's trust, that he has given us through Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He has given us hope and salvation, and it's only up to us to access it. When we are still rooted in ourselves, we have our hope in ourself. That looks like uh, children splashing in the plastic pool in the backyard when just around the bend is the ocean. We're children splashing in the plastic pool in the backyard, and just around the bend is the ocean. We are living in this tiny temporary moment, and eternity is just around the bend. And all we have to do is look and see and go, oh, that's where I live? I have that depth available to me? I have that majesty available to me? And we have to make the choice whether we're going to sit in the baby pool and splash around saying, is this all there is? Or if we're going to open our eyes to the eternity on offer for each of us. We need to find the depth of real rest, and the question becomes how. Tish Harrison Warren says this. She says, I need rituals that encourage me to embrace what is repetitive and ancient and quiet. But what I crave is novelty and stimulation. She recognizes what what we need is something that roots us to eternity, that roots us into truth, that roots us into the ancient and the beautiful, and what we really, really want is novelty and stimulation. When I hear novelty, I think of ice cream. I like ice cream. I think of those ice cream bars, you know, when the ice cream truck pulls through where you go to Frosty Fair and Sunday Station and you can order the actual ice cream bar in the package. Those are the real novelties, the SpongeBob with the gummy nose, you know, the little gumball nose, except it's never where the nose is supposed to be. It's always like on the top corner. These are novelties. We crave novelties. My family loves when the weather warms up. We take long walks and bicycle rides, anything that requires any expensive energy at all to justify the number of trips we take to gorge on soft serve. We love Sunday Station. Why? Because we love the novelty. The little window and the treat that comes out, the sweetness and the joy. And yet no one in here would suggest that a diet of Buckeye Sundays and milkshakes would be a good diet if that's all we ate. No one here would suggest that that in its fullness is good. Everyone would say, not the healthiest idea. For health, we require something else, protein, things that grow from the earth, meat, vegetables, things that take time to cultivate and steward and bring to the table. We live chasing the next stimulation and novelty. We live like children at the Sunday station window waiting for the next thing to come out. We become spiritually unhealthy because we've forgotten how to cultivate a soul at rest. We've forgotten that it takes time and patience and attention to rest. The ritual that Warren talks of is Sabbath. It's this sacred moment of rest that God first modeled for us in the creation. This moment where we sit back and we enjoy and commune with creation itself where you and I have the opportunity to enjoy and commune with the Creator Himself. And I would venture a guess that there is not a single soul in here, self-included, 
that takes an entire day a week to disconnect and commune with God. It's because we're all too important. People need us. And what would they do if they couldn't text me? And so we can't disconnect and we can't get away and we can't commune with God because I need that control and I need that self-importance and I need that thing in my life that reminds me that I'm the center of the universe and everything in Scripture is God saying, get away with me, come away with me, abide in me, rest with me because it will remind us that our hope is not in ourselves, that we're not in control, that our week does not revolve around us, And I can't tell you how to do it. I can't give you the four-step process or the week that you should take or the day that you should take or what you should do. I can send you any number of books I've read on how to do it, and I can tell you I'm still not doing it really well, but I'm trying. So there's families that put all their devices in a basket, and the basket, you know, gets chucked into the basement. And for a couple hours, for one meal, for 20 minutes, everybody's in the same room, and they just have to stare at each other in the awkwardness. But every week it grows, and eventually it became a day. And I know of one family that is not even Christian, but they were so sick of being disconnected that they decided to disconnect. Isn't that ironic? We're so sick of being disconnected, the antidote is to disconnect. Our job is to create a ritual where we slow down and drink deep, where we become present with the world, we become present with others, we become present before God. So the question for you is, is there a window of time that you can set aside to just be? Five minutes, 10 minutes. The better question may be what needs to die so you can truly start to live? What is the thing that holds you back from that? What are the diagnostic when you do the, the, the report on your own life and you go, why wouldn't I do that? What stops me from that? Am I overscheduled? Am I overburned? Am I overconnected? What is the thing that I think is so important that I can't be alone with the creator of the universe? Because here's the truth for today. Our rest reveals our theology. Our rest reveals our theology. If you want to know your secret idols and your shadow saviors, if you want to know what you really think about God, simply look at your free time. And you will see entertainment and consumption and busyness and striving And what you will find is that your rest always shows you your Savior. Then when there is nothing left to do, what you fill that time with is the thing that we are counting on to save us. It's the idol that we hold as ultimate. Second thing is true is your sleep will reflect your soul. Your sleep reflects your soul. When when people ask how I'm doing, I usually say fine and how are you because that's what we're supposed to do. Sometimes I actually answer the question. People say, how are you doing? And I have to stop and I have to think. And the thing I'm actually thinking in my head is not how am I doing. I ask myself, how am I sleeping? Because my sleep always reflects my soul. My sleep is always the answer. That in crazy seasons, like this one, the five weeks for a minister leading up to Easter followed for us all the way through Fam Jam is this kind of 10-week-long run of just general insanity where there is something every single week. There's another thing, and then we add weddings to that, and then we add recitals to that, and then we add graduations to that, and then we, we, all this starts to get all souped in together, and we look up at the end of May, the beginning of June, and we say, oh my gosh, how did we get here? And people lately have said, well, how are you doing? And I actually say, actually, I've been sleeping really well. 
how are you doing, though? And I said, yeah, I'm sleeping really well. It's been a really busy season. I've had no fitful nights or anxiety in the morning, no nightmares or cold sweats. And to be real with you, that's not always been true of my life. That we had a season a lot like this one at this very time of the year, just a few years ago, where my wife and I traded off who got to take Tylenol PM that night to get a little bit of rest. Because whoever didn't was up all night churning through the problems of the day, churning through the chaos that we were living in. And if you had asked me then, how are you doing? I would have said, I'm not sleeping very well. Your sleep reveals your spiritual state. Even when you're up at night, I was reminded that for certain age groups, sleep does not come so easily. And I said, that's okay. Are you restful in your wakefulness or are you frantic and anxious in your wakefulness? If 2 a.m. comes and 2 a.m. comes with anxiety, that is different than 2 a.m. comes and your eyes pop awake and you feel deep peace. Your rest will reveal the state of your soul. You can have modern life and ancient rest. You can have busy days and peaceful nights. You can also have nothing at all to do and a heap of anxiety. David had people coming for his head on a platter. What did he say? I will not fear. I lie down and sleep. Because David's meaning and his hope and his security were in God. Your rest reveals the source of your meaning and your hope and your security. This is a tough one to swallow for a lot of us. We talk about how poor we are at resting. Most of us carry a little bit of guilt out of the room on a Sunday morning. The reality is few of us really do this well. There are a lot of folks in the room right now that would rather have the shock buzzer in their hands than have to consider what it means to truly rest with your days. But here's the thing. Our prayer is not for better sleep. It is for better rest. It is for a life rooted in something unshakable beyond the anxieties of life. From another psalm of King David, he says this, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. David says, truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, and I will not be shaken. David says that true rest and true hope comes only from God. That our meaning is in Jesus, that our hope is in Jesus, our security is in Jesus. That a perfect life that he lived, that the sacrificial death on the cross that he endured, that the conquering of death that he showcased for the world to see the rising from the grave. He's showing us that while we rest, he works, that while we sleep, he saves. And you and I tumble through life in anxiety. He says, rest for a while. We are a people worn thin by the anxious mess that we endure. And if we're honest, the anxious mess that we've created. So I've invited Steph up to sing a prayer for us. My prayer is that it would be your prayer. Prayer of confession that we don't do this all that well. And of petition that we want to be better. Not to earn righteousness, but to know our God and our Savior just a little bit better. 
We would confess we have old, tired bones, that we are living ordinary lives, and we would pray that God might give these old bones new life, that he might infuse in us a renewal of hope and meaning, that we would rest in nothing less than him. that we would live the extraordinary life. So the prayer is, oh, great God, give us rest. we long for that sort of rest for the rest of renewal and the rest of security Lord we long to be a people that are so deeply rooted in you that nothing in this world can shake us I'm going to pray that you would expose in us the idols that create our restlessness places we find ourselves that are uh, only leading into greater anxiety and Father you would insert yourself remind us that you created this that you are our hope and our meaning and you are ultimately our security and our salvation and in that place Father give us rest Amen